What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. A famous line from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet is trying to convey the idea that just because Romeo bears the name of an enemy of the family, it's not who he is. A name doesn't mean anything. It doesn't tell us anything about who Romeo really is to Juliet. We live in a day where this often seems true. The things, the way that things are named or title seems almost arbitrary. There's a certain fluidity, fluidity to language these days and how we identify things. But of course, language means something, doesn't it? Names mean something. They are important. And this is certainly true when we come to the pages of Scripture. It's often in names that we get a fuller understanding of what's going on in a passage, how God is revealing himself and people throughout history. The names given to both people and places are often extremely relevant to the story being told. And for our passage this morning, this is especially true. The names that we find here are crucial to understanding the nature of things as Jesus comes into the world, but also the nature of people. And this morning, I certainly want to consider the name given Messiah, but before we get there, because we're still in Advent, I want to consider some of the names surrounding the name given to our Lord and what it tells us about the situation that Jesus is born into. And I want to do that first where, where Matthew begins a few verses prior to our text this morning by naming a people. Well, if we look back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel, beginning in verse 1, we find that Matthew retells the history of God's people. But he does so in a very interesting way. He does so by genealogy, by listing a bunch of names without a whole lot of commentary around them. But we can tell by the way that Matthew organizes this genealogy that he wants to communicate something very specific, that this genealogy, this line of people is a people of promise. And he does so by emphasizing that these people listed are sons of Abraham and sons of David these primary figures from the Old Testament that New Testament authors look to to show God's promise. These are men of, of faith, men who received the promise of God and held on to it. Well, even as we walk through this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, th there's some people in this family tree that we would just assume get rid of. I mean, there, there's some problems here with some of the names in the text as we read through them. But Matthew wants to convey to us, to the reader, that as troubling as this list of names sometimes looks, this is a line of promise. And Jesus is a son of promise. And this comes out through these names that he's given a promise to Abraham that in his seed, all the nations will be blessed. A promise to David that in his seed, there will be one born, a, a king who will rule God's people eternally. 
So as we read this genealogy, the the careful reader finds it dripping with messianic promise. That is until Matthew gets to the end of the genealogy and, and highlights something that much of Israel probably wish wouldn't be highlighted at all. Exile. And the genealogy ends this way. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. That sounds great. And from David to the deportation or the exile, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. I mean, why ruin this nice genealogy by bringing up Babylon? Certainly a, a scar on God's people and their history, where God's people, because of their disobedience, are dragged away from their home country. Families are split apart. Homes are destroyed. But more than anything, this exile, this deportation is a picture of God's separation from his people. The manifest presence of God in the temple will be no more for the nation. As the prophets say, God signs off on the divorce paper because his people have been adulterous. Well, as we read through the Old Testament, we know that the southern kingdom of Judah eventually does come back from Babylon. They, they come back to the land, they rebuild, they re-inhabit, they re-covenant with God. But as we'll read Tonight, in one of our Advent feast readings, still they had no rest. No son of David sat upon the throne. And the oppressors of God's people still had power over them. And this is where Matthew leaves his genealogy. This is the situation that Jesus is born into. Matthew doesn't even seem to recognize a return from exile. He hits the high point of David to the low point of deportation and says it's at this low point of deportation, this low point of exile, that a savior would come. The people of God in the first century find themselves not under the thumb of Babylon, but but of Rome. Interestingly enough, you read early church literature, oftentimes they'll refer to Rome as Babylon because they see this really as a continued exile. Like the song that we sang this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. The faithful remnant of God's people find themselves in a place similar to how we find ourselves as we reflect on this time of Advent. God has made promises like the ones that we read about in Isaiah this morning. And yet the reality that they find themselves in is a far cry from the picture that the prophets paint of what it will be for the people of God. Like us, I would imagine that they walk through life wondering why God is holding off. Perhaps asking the question that we asked last week, is this what salvation looks like? They live with both promises, but also the reality of distance and brokenness brought about by sin. 
This people are promised Emmanuel for God to be with them, but living in a reality where God seems so far away. Perhaps you can relate at times in your own life. And it's this reality that our text picks up with this morning. This is the reality that God's people are living in, a people in exile awaiting the appearing of God. And so if Matthew begins first by naming a people, once he gets into our passage for this morning, Matthew names a father. So the passages that we're often familiar with when we're reading the birth of Christ are, are those from, from Luke primarily. It's, it's this great story. It really emphasis, uh, uh, emphasizes Mary, and you, you have a, a pretty broad story. A, a lot of history is told there. But, but Matthew takes a very interesting tack, doesn't he? He focuses in on Joseph, a, a guy that we, we don't hear a whole lot about. And right from the onset, Matthew presents a serious problem for Joseph. On the one hand, Joseph has been legally betrothed to this woman named Mary. That is, they have already entered into a contractual commitment to be married, one that would be legally binding. This could be quite possibly an arranged marriage that has been set up for a very long time. And yet we also know that it has not yet been consummated, either sexually or by the couple living together in one home. And yet legally, according to Jewish law, Joseph had all marital rights, including the right to expect sexual fidelity from his betrothed. However, at least from outward appearance, Mary's broken the agreement. Mary, likely a young teenager, like so many teenage brides before and since, has turned up pregnant before the wedding day. And the best explanation for this, the explanation that Joseph likely thought to himself, is, is the best explanation at any point. Whether out of curiosity or adolescent rebellion, she has given herself to another. And knowing that he is not the father, Joseph's going to do the right thing. He's going to slip out quietly, divorce her, and take the quiet way out. Now, we're not sure about the timing. Has the angel come to Mary? Has Mary told Joseph about this angelic announcement? Or is Joseph just noticing that clothes are fitting a little bit more tight? Either way, it would appear that Joseph's not buying this whole Holy Spirit conception thing that she's laying down. And he sure as heck knows that no one else is going to buy it. I mean, you can imagine the questions that are coming when the child arrives and looks a lot like his mother, but nothing like his father. In fact, the Pharisees will pick this up later when talking to Jesus in, in the Gospel of John. They'll, they'll say, hey, we're not the ones who are born of fornication. The word is out. As one author remarks on this whole scenario, it is just like God to hide the gifts of grace and sovereignty in the midst of what appears tawdry and happenstance. And that's exactly what this situation looks like. It doesn't look good. And Joseph has every legal right to make a scene. I mean, the law would call for an adulterous woman in this case to be stoned. 
That would be the full force of the law. At the very least, the the law would call for Joseph to be separated from this adulterous woman because of impurity. He would need to separate himself for the sake of his own holiness. To, To stay is not an option for Joseph according to the law. And our passage tells us that Joseph is a just man, a righteous man. And he'll follow the law by pursuing divorce. But we also find that Joseph is a compassionate man. He has no desire to make matters worse for Mary. Instead, he's going to divorce quietly and hope that this whole situation just kind of goes away, that he can move on. But our text tells us that after Joseph had made up his mind to divorce Mary, he has a dream. Verse 20 tells us that as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. We find something interesting right off the bat in this angelic greeting. Matthew and verse 16 has just told us that Joseph's father's name is Jacob. And so we have a bit of a problem here, don't we? Which one is it? Is this the son of Jacob or is this the son of David? Why is he giving him this title? This title that in the New Testament is reserved only for Christ himself. Is it the angel that's mistaken here? Is it Matthew and his genealogy that's mistaken? Well, I don't think there's any mistake here. I mean, certainly for us, the reader, when we hear this title given Joseph, we remember this genealogy, right? This line of promise. And this title puts Joseph right in this line. It it reminds us there's maybe there's not, uh, maybe there's something going on to uh, in this story that we're not quite seeing, but I would argue that it would do the same for this father, for Joseph. Joseph is a good Jewish man, knows the law, knows the scriptures. And as John Calvin remarks, this, the predictions of the prophet were in effect brought forward by this title. That the angel calls him a son of David, and this would call Joseph to think of himself as part of this line of promise. Calvin goes on, to say that the angel prepared the mind of Joseph for receiving the present favor. The angel names this father with a name of promise, Joseph, son of David. And it appears like Joseph gets it, doesn't it? I mean, we find that he fell asleep, decidedly going the path of divorcing his wife, and yet he wakes up with a very different idea in mind. He has changed course, the text tells us. And Joseph here, who was labeled just or righteous according to the law, now finds a true righteousness and trusting in the promise. And though Joseph will not be the father by blood, he, he will be the legal father of this child by adoption, tying Jesus directly to the promise of Abraham and to the promise of David. And this adoption occurs by way of the father naming his son. If we 
started by naming the people and their condition and, and, and moved to now naming this father. I want to consider finally the naming of the son. Don't get too excited. We're going to spend a little time here. Just as there was a bit of a discrepancy in the name of Joseph, or at least in the name of his father, there's a discrepancy, and I would, I would argue a much more obvious one, in the naming of Jesus. The, the discrepancy in Joseph's father's name is a little bit more difficult to identify here, but this one almost jumps off the page. Let's take a look. The angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and says, you shall call his name Jesus. And Matthew tells us that this particular name fulfills a particular prophecy. And what's that prophecy? They shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, Jesus and Emmanuel are both great names, but they're not the same name. How does this naming of Jesus fulfill this prophecy at all? There's been some some scholars, I read some interesting things this week of folks trying to say, well, in the Hebrew or the uh, Aramaic, these names can kind of look similar or, or they sound uh, kind of similar. And once you bring them over to Greek and then certainly English, they just kind of, that's not what's going on. That's not what's going on. Yeshua and Emmanuel don't look alike. They don't sound alike. These are two different names. And yet, we find that the name Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Emmanuel, God with us. Well, I want to consider these names for a few moments. Both of them have wonderful implications, implications that we sing about this time of year. But since it's still Advent, I want to consider some of the darker sides that these names imply and perhaps see how we can reconcile this discrepancy. Well, if we look back at the prophecy from Isaiah, this prophecy that we read this morning, the words that Matthew quotes here in the text, we find that the prophet has been sent to King Ahaz, essentially telling him not to worry about these enemy nations that are coming to invade. You know, he, he's got much bigger problems to worry about, but the, but the Lord is in control and Isaiah says, uh, the God will give you a sign. And Ahaz says, I don't want a sign. And Isaiah says, you're going to get a sign anyway. And here's what it will look like. Behold, a virgin shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey. We're fairly familiar with this passage from Isaiah. We hear it a lot this time of, of year. But this sign, this announcement would have been a bit confusing, if not ominous. On the one hand, how is the birth of a baby to an unmarried woman any kind of sign at all? And even this name Emmanuel, which is beautiful to us, implies something. It implies that this child is coming into a place and time where the presence of God has somehow been rescinded. If he's coming as God with us, it implies that God was not with them. And the son's diet actually confirms this. Now, curds and honey could be like an upscale smoothie shop in Temecula, but that's not what's going on in this text. This would be the diet of one whose land and agriculture has been laid waste. 
This child will be born in a time of quiet from God. When God's people have been turned over to their enemies and their promised land is not yielding that which was promised. And this is certainly how the history of the nation plays out, isn't it? That they will go into exile, be taken over by another nation, not because of their lack of military savvy, although that may have been the case, but, but ultimately because God's hand was against them. God's hand of judgment against their sins. And Isaiah will go on to confirm this. He'll say that it is your iniquities that have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face. The enemy nations were no doubt an issue. But the true issue for God's people had always been their own sin. And just as Joseph had full legal right to divorce Mary, God had full legal right to divorce himself from his people because of their repeated acts of adultery. And it's what he ends up doing. And they find themselves in exile, the exile that Matthew sets up for us in the genealogy. And this is a sobering reality, isn't it? Certainly as we look at the history of God's people, but then as we look at our own lives, as we consider what one deserves who is in sin, lives laid waste, the complete removal of God's presence. And I think what perhaps makes this most sobering is that the problem is not out there. The, the, the problem is in our own hearts. God's people were constantly concerned about the enemy nations invading. But the truth of the matter is, is they were pretty good at screwing things up on their own, weren't they? And so it is with us. Our greatest dangers are not those that come from without, but are those that arise from within. We've, we've recognized this the last few weeks as we've gone through those lengthened and, and brutal Advent confessions. <laughs> we confess that we have been unchaste. We acknowledge all our sins of the flesh and confess all our excess in eating and drinking, as well as our intemperance in seeing, hearing, and speaking. We've confessed that we have stolen. We acknowledge our greed we admit that in the use of our worldly goods that we have set ourselves against you, God, and your holy laws. Greedily and against charity have we grasped our possessions and scarcely at all given to those in need. And it keeps going. We confess that we have borne false witness, that we have been untrue and unfaithful particularly toward our neighbors. We've lied to them. We have told lies about them and we have failed to defend their honor and reputation as our own. We have constantly put creatures in front of the creator because we have feared them more than God. I mean, we've confessed these things together and some of these confessions make us uncomfortable and they make us uncomfortable because they're true of us. And it's painful to say these things out loud. And if this is the case, and, and sin continues to be our main issue in the world that we live in, 
then Emmanuel, God with us, is not good news. God's visitation against rebellious people will not go well. Dad's coming home soon is not good news for a kid who's been a brat all day. But dad's coming home soon really is an Advent reality for us, isn't it? An Advent reality like the days of Mary and Joseph. And an Advent reality for us as we anticipate Christ's final coming. For Emmanuel, God with us, to be good news, another name would have to come with it. And in Matthew 1, we find that name, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves, transliterated into English, Jesus. And that is the name that this chosen child receives, that Yahweh saves. And it is that name that makes Emmanuel good news. That God is with us. Because God is for us in Christ. For in Christ, Yahweh and flesh has arrived, but not to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. And not just saved in a general sense, but as the angel declares to Joseph, Yahweh comes to save his people from what? From their sins. The main issue the most offensive issue to God is rectified in God himself, clothing himself in humanity in order to unite to his people, to be with them, but also to be for them by saving them, by saving us from our true enemy, ourselves. That all who believe in him would not perish at his appearing, but might find life. As we've reflected over the past few weeks, we like our Old Testament brethren are are in a time of waiting. So much so that the New Testament authors will label us with names like elect exiles or, or sojourners. We still live in a broken world with broken bodies and broken sinful hearts. And by sight, just as we have confessed all of these sins so often, we can say, like King David, my sin is always before me. But because of God's saving work in history, your sin is no longer before him. Because it has been buried with Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world, not in spite of sinners, but to save sinners. He is mighty to save. You might say this morning, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. Don't make yourself out to be bigger than God's salvation. He's not intimidated by your sin. The son of God willing to take on the form of sinful flesh, being born in what looks like an illegitimate birth, giving himself to the pain of this life, the sadness of rejection, the burden of the guilt of the law, and a bloody death by crucifixion is not intimidated by your sin. 
In fact, he's done these things and taken on these things, enduring the wages of sin and death to save you from your sin. And in Christ this day, your sin is no more. It has been nailed to the cross and you are forgiven. And he is coming again and he's going to judge the world and that's a scary reality. But for us, his elect, he comes with final vindication in hand. And as we this day prepare to celebrate his first coming together, let us be found awake and ready for his second coming, not by trusting in ourselves, but in the name that he gives us, a name of promise, a name of salvation, his own name that he stamps upon us. And may that name strengthen us this day to persevere and hold on to this faith for the sake of Christ, for the sake of our neighbor. Let's pray.